Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely fantastic. It is a you know, fantastic time to be alive. We're still stuck indoors, but supposedly, maybe, soon enough, we'll be allowed out of our own homes. Although they did pause. This is obviously recorded. I don't know what date it is, but it's a Sunday. And I think it's not going to come out until next week. Um, but as of today, they paused that uh, AstraZeneca vaccination because of like blood clot issues or, you know, potential um, issues there um, that they're investigating, which is obviously not great because we've already had a fucking terrible rollout of vaccines in Ireland and uh, anything that even just presents a mild stumbling block um, I don't, I don't enjoy that because even if it's just, oh, it's two weeks delayed, that's two weeks of my freedom potentially delayed, even though, you know, that's potentially a good thing in certain regards in terms of, you know, safer society, etc. But ultimately, like I want to actually be able to leave my house more frequently than I currently do. And any impediment to that is, you know, not beneficial to my life. Yes, sir. We hope yourself, for Gary, You are still on placement as of now, or are you finished it now? finish now back online for the next two weeks we will have some virtual hospital tutorials um so that'll be interesting uh and it's six weeks until exam time and then i have one more elective prior to summer um and then there'll be time for for exclusive triage work for a couple of months so that'll be fun um in the meantime just training away studying away working away and happy out phenomenal and as you just um, alluded to there we'll say like you are actually studying to be a doctor right and that is great because that clearly relates to what we're actually discussing in this podcast which is do doctors get enough nutrition education i suppose we'll put it under that broad question even though like what is enough like that's a, a much broader question overall. Like I know the two of us from our perspective, we would love if, you know, children were getting nutrition education, like in primary schools in you know, throughout their entire education. I like, I'm like, why are we singling out doctors? Cause in our view, at least uh, I would think, um, we would like everyone to be nutritionally educated, you know, not just doctors, you know, now obviously again, you look at like who has potentially the most impact on health, and whatever we call this stuff, health, fitness, whatever. Um, like it's going to be doctors, it's going to be those medical professionals, etc. So maybe, you know, focusing on them first would be a great step. However, is that really their job? And that's something that we'll kind of touch on a little bit more as we get through this podcast. But the reason we're doing this episode in the obesity series um, is because this is a I'm going to say an accusation that is leveled at the medical professionals, you know, frequently, right. In terms of right now, like some of the biggest leading causes of death in the world are, let's call them like non-communicable diseases that have a huge nutrition and lifestyle component to, you know, I don't think that is necessarily up for debate. You know, it's like if obesity, we know it's a, a calories in calories out story now obviously that's incredibly you know not nuanced and we've been doing an entire podcast series on, on that topic but fundamentally that's that's what's going on there is a mismatch between calories in and a mismatch between calories out right <clears throat> so we know that obviously has to have a huge um lifestyle and nutrition element to it and as a result if we are going to tell people that are overweight and obese to, you know, seek help um, as needed, you know, in, in trying to get better their health, like who do they turn to? One of the people they go, they're going to turn to is their doctors, right? So if we know that these are issues that are, you know, present in terms of, you know, people's health um, and we know it's a leading cause of death and we know there's a nutrition component, surely doctors should know more about nutrition, right? And that's what we'll get into that, right? And um, like if doctors are treating these conditions, like they should know a huge amount about training uh, lifestyle nutrition, right? You would presume, right? Or you would make an argument for, and that's an understandable, like logical argument to make, right? And I'm just going to rattle out some things that I 
was reading up on just prior to this um, because obviously I was investigating whether, you know, these kind of, we'll call them accusations are, you know, worthy. Are, are, are they actually worthy of investigation? Are they actually, you know, accurate? And some of the things I came across now, again, I haven't cross-checked, triple-checked the validity of all of this. And again, like you can find conflicting numbers wherever. It's not like I'm going to these colleges. It's not like I emailed the deans of medicine or whatever being like, oh, let me tell me about me your program or whatever. Um, but roast, roast, most recent surveys show nutrition education time for doctors in America. Now, a lot of the data is from America because they keep usually better data than elsewhere. And also there's a, I'm going to say a bigger health crisis over there in terms of overweight and obesity. And this is the context of what I'm looking at this through or the lens of which I'm looking at this through. Um, which uh, the education time for doctors in America is actually reducing, not increasing, which is a little bit converse to what you would ideally think, or you would like to see happen. If we're saying that, you know, the non-communicable diseases that have a nutrition lifestyle component, they're actually increasing. The deaths from them are actually increasing. So surely if that's becoming a bigger issue, you would expect doctors to be getting more education on that. Right. Um, Further to that, only one-fifth of American medical schools require students take a nutrition course, right? So they're not actually required to do a nutrition course, right? Um, most medical schools, schools, if I can't even speak. I literally said that. I was talking to Gary before this podcast, and I said that exact same thing, and I've never said that before in my life. But schools, anyway, is the, is the word. Most medical schools in the U.S. teach less than 25 hours of nutrition over four years. Right. So you read those things that can be very like a frightening in terms of you're like, okay, wow, this is a, this is something that we should definitely address. You know, like these doctors are actually getting less medical education and maybe you'll be able to touch on this in a second, Gary, when I allow you to speak. Um, but you had to do a, a GAMSAT before you got into medical school, didn't you? Yep. And as far as I'm aware, there's not actually a huge nutrition component on that at all. Is there? Absolutely nothing. So no. you, but you have to do like physics and stuff. Yeah. So it's biology, that, chemistry, literature, everything. Yeah. Like that's a bit weird. Again, like just thinking of it from you know, a logical perspective, surely you would want like not necessarily to know physics, even though I would argue that you would ideally like to know physics. Um, but you don't necessarily need to use that, but you're going to likely need to use nutrition information. So surely that should be you know emphasized even in the, the entrance criteria. But anyway, look, I digress. Um, and they're, they're all, you know, accusations will say that are levied against the medical sphere. And, you know, again, you could argue very logically that this is something that we need to address. However, we also have to take it from a different perspective in terms of like doctors are part of a multidisciplinary team in general, right? Now, maybe obviously if your doctor is, you know, uh, a GP, a uh, you know, it's just a general practice somewhere and you're in the middle of the fucking country. I don't know. And it's the only doctor around for a couple of miles. Like maybe that doctor needs to be more educated in certain things and um, because they're the, the only source of information. Um, but in general, most doctors are part of a multidisciplinary team, you know? Um, and this is especially the case, obviously, if you're in a hospital setting, especially a well-equipped hospital, right? Um, and if we're going to say that doctors are the ones that are supposed to know about nutrition, are we just getting rid of dietetics? Are we just getting rid of like the, the, the role of nutritionists? Like where is the crossover? Like how much of which should they know? Like, where is like, when do we start, you know, stepping on other fields toes, right? Um, like should doctors even be giving nutrition advice at all? You know, and I, I look at it from the perspective of me, like I'm not going to give you surgery advice, you know, like I'm a, a personal trainer, a coach, I'm not going to be giving you surgery advice. Now I might have <clears throat> opinions based on my, you know, my knowledge of like, you know, biomechanics, the way that this individual's body moves, etc. But ultimately like it's going to come down to <clears throat> what your surgeon thinks is the best, you know, treatment for you. Right. Um, so why would you treat a doctor differently? You know, if a doctor is there to give you like kind of generalized advice, we'll just say a GP kind of generalized advice, you know, get some tests, get some or the ability to refer you off to a specialist like why are you expecting them to know nutrition if their job is literally like i'm basically going to let's say diagnose the issue and then refer you to a specialist if they've diagnosed the issue as you need nutrition advice the specialist is a dietitian you know like why are you expecting the doctor to give you the the medical or the, the nutrition advice right they're there to give you medical advice 
right? Um, so again, like that's that's something we need to think through, right? Um, and then obviously, like you, people kind of treat doctors as if it's a homogenous class, right? In terms of it's like, oh, like oh, you're a doctor. Like that, that means literally like fuck all, right? You could literally, and you see all these memes as well, like online where it's like, oh, I'm a doctor. And they're like, oh, this person needs help. And they're like, oh, I'm a doctor of like philosophy or, you know, something that's, you know, not actually like a, a medical doctor, like that we would refer to as a, a doctor in society, right? Like a, an MD in America, or, you know, I don't know what the, the term is in Ireland in terms of the, the credentials you get. I know it's a bit long. Yeah, like no one's saying that. Um, but anyway, look, there's obviously, it's not a homogenous class. Like there's a difference between the GP versus like a heart doctor, like a cardiologist type thing, or uh, like a surgeon, like just clearly a difference here in terms of, yeah, they might all be a, a doctor, but their level of knowledge in a different field is going to be different or it's going to be required to be different based on what they're actually doing day to day, right? Like they don't all need the same knowledge, right? And ultimately, I'm going to let Gary start speaking now in one second. And um, ultimately the question that we want to answer today is like, is expecting your doctor to know about nutrition expecting too much, you know, like should, like, should they basically just treat it as, Oh, I should just refer out for this. And um, should you go to your doctor for nutrition advice? What are your thoughts, Gary? Yeah. So firstly, I think there's a case to be made here for, trying to be uh, conservative in your approach to the problem. And what I mean by that is that the conservative might say, you know, okay, we've got all these grand ideas about how we could improve this, but maybe there's a reason that it is the way it is. You know, maybe there's something that we might be missing. And I think you can understand that better if you take a, a deeper dive into what it actually means to study medicine. And when you study medicine, fundamentally what you're doing is you're getting an introduction to such a broad field or fields, okay? So when you say doctor, like that makes sense to the lay person. Like it's like, oh yeah, my doctor. You probably picture your GP realistically or one of the doctors you might've seen in the hospital. But what that means to someone that studies medicine or that is um, a medical or surgical doctor themselves it means basically nothing, okay? Because if you graduate as a doctor, it's like, oh yeah, you're an intern, like you're bottom of the ladder. Like you've basically no knowledge. We'll trust you to do some phone calls and to, you know, you'll be making some decisions, but you're fundamentally don't have a deep knowledge of anything really. What you've gotten is, is an introduction to a broad range of fields. So when you think about medical education, what you have to realize is that the education itself is very much an introduction that is going to give you a platform on, on which you can then build depending on your personal interest um, or field of interest. And that might sound like, oh, wow, I, I wasn't expecting that. You know, medicine is just an introduction, the degree, this hard degree that everyone talks about. And it's just important to understand both the breadth and the depth um, of medicine because you've got to study so many different subjects to varying levels um, of importance. So for example, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, pharmacology, pathology, they're kind of core subjects that are important for basically any medical doctor. But if you want to then be, for example, a radiologist or an anesthesiologist, there's going to be more physics in those professions that you're going to have to dig into. Like an anesthesiologist is going to know lots about respiratory physiology and, and the physics related to that. The radiologist has to understand uh, things like MRI and CT and, and the physics behind those things, because that informs how you interpret images. And they're like much deeper fields of study. Like the, the neurosurgeon or the neurologist is going to know the brain in such great detail. They're going to know all of the, all of the pathologies of the brain in far more detail than would ever be covered in medical school. Because what you have to realize is that when we get lectures, um, particularly in your early years and in your introductory years, when you get lectures on, let's say, um, diseases of the cardiovascular system, you might get a couple of lectures on that. So a couple of hours of teaching, but you have 2000 page textbooks written on diseases of the cardiovascular system, all of the nuances of those diseases, all of the atypical presentations, different types of infections, uh, potentially tumors, uh, lifestyle related diseases like we're discussing. So it's so, so broad and so, so deep. And it's absolutely 
just impossible to cover everything in a degree. Okay. It's, it's just not how it works. And that's the reason why when you go to <clears throat> your hospital, for example, if you've got a, a chest infection, for example, like a very basic lower respiratory tract infection, most doctors are going to know how to approach that. You know, if someone comes in with a cough, it's like, okay, I have a rough idea for a, a diagnosis there. Um, that's fine. You know, no problem. Someone comes in with a sore knee to the GP. It's like, okay, we're, we're going to rule out some things. And they're not very complicated problems, or at least they mightn't be complicated problems. However, you've got a, a specialist or multiple specialists in each respective discipline that are going to have more niche knowledge. So for example, an oncologist is going to know so much more detail about the different cancers that could present and the treatments for those. And you might have like an ophthalmologist, a doctor who specializes in the eyes, um, who knows little to nothing about the different types of, of cancers that might present in, I don't know, the liver, for example. Like, yeah, they might have heard some stuff in medical school, but in terms of how they, you diagnose it and how you treat it, they're complex things. They're really complex things. So the overall point there is that as you, as you, get, as you come out of, of medical school and you graduate, there's all these different pathways that you can take. So for example, in your early years, uh, you might decide, do I want to do medicine or do I want to do surgery? Like that might be a basic decision for someone. And those respective pathways then diverge further and further over time to the point where, you know, a, a surgical trainee is going to be, you know, primarily interested in learning about uh, surgical skills, for example, and maybe the basic like pre-op and post-op medical management, but they're not going to know about all of the medical management, even within the same respective system. So if you have a, cardio, a, cardi, a cardiologist, and then you have a cardiothoracic surgeon, they're both experts in their respective areas related to the heart and the cardiovascular system, but they're going to have totally different levels of knowledge when it comes to the specifics. So the important thing to get there is that even when you get to these specialties of oh, now I'm a doctor who specializes in the heart. It's like, oh, but what do you actually mean? Like, are you cardiothoracics? Or are you, you know, cardiology? Or are you a pediatric cardiologist? Like, again, more complex. Like, that's another thing is that you can subdivide this infinitely. Like, you could be a someone who specializes just in pediatrics, or you could specialize literally in, in one, one organ or one type of surgery. Like, you might be someone who you're so specialized now that all you do is liver surgery. That's all you do. And it might be a particular type of liver surgery. So the overall point here is that medicine has infinite opportunities for specializing. The more you specialize, the more knowledge you accumulate. And the, the other important thing here is that within medicine and healthcare generally, you would, all, you would almost always expect that disease would be managed in a multidisciplinary manner as appropriate, of course. So I say as appropriate because the different members of that multidisciplinary team or MDT is going to vary depending on the particular disease. So for example, if you think about um, dietetics, because it's relevant to this conversation, people might think of a dietitian and they hear the word diet and they're like, okay, we're going to be talking about nutrition. So uh, weight loss, how to generally be healthier, et cetera. But that's kind of not the reality. You know, a dietitian is very much involved in a medical setting um, with, for example, uh, total parenteral feeding, nasogastric feeding, different ways of feeding people who are quite ill. You know, what do the, how do we create the right solutions? Uh, what, what minerals do we need to include? The person isn't eating, like all of these sorts of things. And then there's further complexity with the dietitian wants to have their nutrition um, plan of action implemented for this particular patient. But now that dietitian wants to know, okay, how's, how are things on the medical side? You know, what medications are they taking? Um, what's their fluid in, their fluid out, all these sorts of details. And then nursing might be informing those types of things. Uh, what's the urine output? What's uh, the patient's weight this morning? Have they been eating when you've been walking past the ward? And then all that in mind, you've implemented all that. And now you've got to speak to the speech and language therapist because, oh, this patient actually had some difficulty with swallowing. So we might need to change the consistency of the diet. So all of this is just talking about implementing nutrition in a medical setting. And suddenly we've gone from dietetics to nursing, to medicine, to speech and language therapy. And then, oh, this patient actually is also having difficulty with uh, holding the fork because they've had a stroke. So now occupational therapy um, is involved. Oh, and now the patient is having difficulty in the kitchen. So now physiotherapy is involved to try to improve their function, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of see where I'm going with this. The point is that medicine and healthcare is really complicated. 
uh, and complex. And you have to have multiple different disciplines to be able to manage these problems because there's no one discipline that can do it. So even when, when you break it down to the field of dietetics, for example, you might have dietitians who specialize just in patients uh, with uh, kidney disease or just in patients with cardiovascular disease or just in patients with malnutrition. Like that might be their respective area of expertise. And that just goes to show that even as you break it down to the level of just saying nutrition, that can mean many different things. You know, are you talking about um, this kind of general lifestyle related stuff that we talk about as it relates to, to the fitness industry, let's say, or are we talking about how to maintain uh, nutrient status in a patient who's had uh, some sort of surgery that removes a certain part of the bowel? Okay. You need to know then, and the, the actual anatomy of the bowel and what nutrients are taken up in different areas and then why, how that, nu that uh, nutrient uptake might be affected now that that person has had that surgery. So things become very, very nuanced, very, very quick. And if you were to speak to a, nutri a nutritionist or someone who might make this argument, the doctor should know more about nutrition, they mightn't even know that much about nutrition because if a patient has had um, a colostomy, you know, they've, they've got this, um, they've had surgery and they've got, let's say, a stoma bag now, they don't know the nutrition indications for that. They don't know how to manage that. And you wouldn't expect them to, you know, why would you like, um, and the, the, the point there is that everyone has their own respective field of expertise. And because medicine is so deep and so broad also, um, I think that the calls for doctors to have very high levels of nutrition education within medical school is really, really difficult because the thing is like, it would be great if, if doctors could have, you know, a hundred hours allocated to comprehensive nutrition education, but then also we'd like them to have that education in psychology and behavior change, for example, uh, because that's important for implementing nutrition, but also for impl implementing medical interventions. And then we might want to know, for example, exercise as well. You know, you, you, want, you need that education for exercise as well, if we're making the case for, for nutrition. And then we might need to know even, even more complex things. Like, for example, people, some people will make the case that, oh, doctors need to be addressing racism or doctors need to be addressing social inequalities or doctors need to be addressing um, housing issues. All of these sorts of problems that can absolutely affect someone's health but how much, how much of a role do you want the doctor to play? You know, do you want them to actually know about the, the best option from a medical management perspective and how to implement that and then refer out um, when it goes beyond that? Or do you want them to maybe sacrifice some of the knowledge of their anatomy, let's say, to spend it on um, understanding exercise to a deep level instead of referring to physiotherapy or instead of referring to, to personal training? So they'd be some of the initial defenses that I think are important to keep in mind. But there is also another layer to this because we could actually make the case that, you know, there's lots of improvements to be made. And what would actually be fantastic would be, yeah, doctors do have, you know, uh, some basic level of nutrition knowledge, but that they also have systems in place to refer to, let's say, community dietitians who specialize just in um, prevention, for example, um, or community physiotherapists or community personal trainers or strength coaches that are within, let's say, the HSE in Ireland that we refer out to and we've got this lovely network going. That's an ideal world and that's very difficult to implement. And this is where you have to consider uh, trade-offs, for example, because very often people who are interested in healthcare will advocate for things like socialized medicine, for example, or some sort of social programs as it relates to healthcare. Um, and then that just brings you to the next question of, okay, how are we going to allocate funding? You know, what's more important? Um, for example, some of the medications for uh, cystic fibrosis or CAMBI, I believe is the name of it, I think it can cost up to 400,000 euro per year. And it's like, okay, that's for a single patient. Um, how do we weigh up the, the ethics of allocating funding to that particular cost versus uh, a 400,000 euro uh, lifestyle intervention within the Dublin region, let's say? These are very difficult things. And they're the, they're the types of things that, that present challenges in healthcare because how do you, how do you manage all this? You know, it's like, the, it's like the fundamental problem of, like, of central planning in economies generally that's applied to healthcare. How do we make the decisions? What areas are we going to optimize? And where are we going to get all this money? You know, are you willing to pay like 70% like taxes to fund all these new uh, lifestyle programs? This is the difficult thing. So I absolutely think that there could 
be improvements made for sure. Um, particularly, for example, for diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, all these diseases that we consider uh, to be very much related to lifestyle and that lifestyle is very much involved in the management. It would be great if we had better programs for uh, within the community, like outside the hospital for, for prevention and for secondary prevention. But the, there's just many layers of problems that make that challenging. And I think that expecting the overworked junior doctors on the floor to be able to manage this is, is really challenging. And outside the hospital, from a GP perspective, again, we run into the same problems because depending on where you go, whether it's Ireland or the UK or America, the GP consultations can be as short as five to 10 minutes. And very often that involves like screening for ensuring that let's say this isn't a more serious problem that requires referral. The patient might have multiple problems they're presenting with. They might need medication review, subsequent prescription, etc. And it's just very difficult to fit everything involved in health within those brief consultations. And that's fundamentally not modifiable unless we have um, some sort of healthcare reform, like, okay, we've triple our number of GPs and, um, you know, millions and millions is allocated to, to funding. Like it's, it, they're difficult problems, man. And I don't know how to solve them. <laughs> yeah, and this is one of those things where it's like, how do you allocate resources that have alternate use, like yeah. alternate uses, you know, like who gets to decide that, you know, like say we do have like some sort of like, again, we'll call it socialized medicine, even though like technically in Ireland, we do have socialized medicine. Technically in Ireland right now, we don't have private medicine, but that's a, another story, right? We have socialized medicine, right? But even if that's the case and we say we have that in Ireland, like right now people are making these same arguments. Like that's not necessarily going to solve it because even with the confines of the resources that they have, they obviously are like, okay, well, I don't want to allocate these resources to this issue because they're not seeing it as uh, a beneficial strategy, right? They're like, we can actually impact more change, impact more lives by allocating those resources elsewhere. And that might not be the case with the disease that you care about in terms of, you know, like you use the cystic fibrosis one, like if you have cystic fibrosis or, you know, God forbid your child has cystic fibrosis or something. Um, and you're like, Oh, I would rather have all of the money allocated towards this. Like that's always going to be the case. And then it just becomes like this moral and ethical dilemma. And like, you know, obviously it's political or quasi political as well layered on top of that. And it's like, this can just be stuck in a quagmire then because no one wants to move an inch because their issue is the most pressing in their lives. And potentially they can't see it from another perspective as a result, right? Um, but then also you don't want to just like wash your hands of this. You know, you're not like Pontius Pilate or something and be like, right, oh, look, the system is what the system is. So let's not even try to look at it. Let's not even try to change it. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a beneficial strategy either, right? Um, and it basically comes back to this thing where it's like, okay, like how much nutritional education does someone actually need, right? And I'm going to ask in terms of a few, or I'm going to suggest in terms of a few different fields of doctors. Like, as we said, like a doctor is not a homogenous group, right? There's obviously going to be a few different types of doctor, we'll say, that require more or less nutritional education. And as you said, that doesn't necessarily need to occur at the, the four to five years that you do to become a doctor. You know, like that's, that's the entry level stuff. That's not necessarily the time to be learning this stuff. However, after that, you would expect a few different types of doctors to have that knowledge. However, before we even get onto that, let's look back and go, I said earlier on that they get, what is it? Uh, teach less than 25 hours of nutrition over four years, right? 25 hours is actually a fucking long time. That's decent. Like that's, that's actually a lot. Like realistically, if you got me someone in front of me that was, you know, educated enough to get in to do medicine, right? So they're obviously intelligent and they can obviously, well, even if it's just a case of like, they can memorize things, you know, they can, you know, memorize the nutrition stuff just as easily as they can memorize the anatomy or the physiology or whatever. Like they're, they're an educated population. It's not like these people are stupid, you know, it's not like they, they, they aren't able to pick up the information. Like how much time do you actually need to educate someone on good nutrition practices, right? Like realistically, I was thinking of it and I was like, man, you could get someone to re have a really good understanding of nutrition in probably three hours. You know, I think about it, you spend an hour on, especially from a, like we'll say from a doctor's perspective, cause it's, it's very similar to from a coach's perspective. Right. Um, 
obviously with major differences, but hear me out, right? So the first thing is like, you need to teach them like calories and macros. Like that's the foundation of a diet. If they understand that, they've got such a good grounding overall that, you know, they, the, the layering on top of that, you know, it's, it's kind of less relevant, right? So we'll just go calories and macros. You can teach them all the finite stuff you need to know in that stuff in an hour, right? Not obviously, not all of it, but you know what I mean? Like a fairly decent understanding in an hour. You know, we'll talk about the upper and lower limits. Now for a doctor, you know, maybe you want to layer on some micronutrient stuff as well. But again, we'll just even say that's the, that's the uh, role of a dietitian to look at that stuff, right? We'll, we'll just, you know, put that out there, right? Then the next lesson, you know, what do you need to teach? You need to teach how to actually implement that in a real diet, right? How do you actually like hit these targets? Uh, okay, you know about protein, but well, what the fuck is protein? Like, how do I get, how, where do I find that in my diet as a normal person, you know? Like, so you need to actually think about the actual foods, right? So the first lesson, it's all about the underlying nutritional science. The next lesson, it's all about like the implementation of that. And again, you could do that fairly quickly, you know? And again, this is why they have stuff for like generalized health recommendations where it's like, here's the food pyramid. It's because it's quick and easy. You know, it's not because it's perfect. It's because I can disseminate a lot of information very fucking quickly with just here's how it should look. And I think as well, especially since they've moved to like my place um, rather than the, the nutrition pyramid, I'm like, that's actually a really handy way of, teaching this stuff to both the patient and to the doctor, you know? And so we'll just say you spend an entire hour going on top of that. Right. And we'll assume like, you know, the doctor is going to spend some time outside of this doing a bit of extra learning. Let's say, you know, I know in college, they always say like, Oh, this one hour of lecture time is like eight hours of, you know, study time yourself. I'm like, what the fuck am I studying? Like, you know, this is, this was fairly intuitive, but anyway, look, um, let's just say you do that the second hour. Then the third hour, it's like, how do you actually coach this stuff? What, what are, the, imp what are the, the issues you're going to run into? What are the objections? What are the, the different things? Like, well, you can even touch on like the socioeconomics. You can even touch on the, you know, like whatever it is that needs to be layered on top of that. Three hours, you could build someone's nutritional education, an educated person's nutritional education to a phenomenal standpoint, you know? So if they're getting 25 hours, you know, like that's fairly decent. Like how much more do they actually need? Yeah, I don't know where people are getting twenty-five hours of nutrition education. To be honest, like <laughs> that's pretty, like that would that would be absolutely pretty decent. Um, but even if you took all that knowledge on board, like it's it's still so difficult to implement. Like that's that's the fundamental problem here is that like I think there's a huge disconnect between like the personal training world and like the realities of of healthcare, like you know, even in terms of like health literacy and the the challenges of like buying certain foods or the the role of like someone's individual like culture and family in shaping their diet, like all these things are so challenging. And and as personal trainers, the problem is we actually get people at their point of preparedness where they've decided I want to change my diet. And if it, they come to triage, let's say, you've been following triage, you've listened to the podcast, you've, you're clearly someone interested in all this. And now you're saying, I am ready to implement these things. But if someone's in hospital and they're sick, they might've been fine a couple of days ago, living their life. And suddenly they're in the depths, like they're at their worst. Like now is not necessarily the time that they're thinking, oh, time to change my diet. Like certainly that happens for some people. Like my grandfather, when he was only 60, I think he had a massive heart attack, massive heart attack. And from then on, boom, right? I'm never smoked again, you know, doesn't drink, eats really well, because that was enough of a shock to the system. But the challenging thing there as well is that because when we talk about non-communicable disease, like diabetes or cardiovascular disease, for example, these are chronic problems. So by the time someone ends up presenting, let's say with, I don't know, a, a diabetic foot ulcer, let's say, um, or problems with their vision, things have already progressed. Like there's so much of behavior development, habit development, dietary preferences, et cetera, and the you know, adoption of a certain lifestyle and the complications of the disease. There's so many things that have happened to get that person to that point that it's really difficult to elicit change. Um, and the later in someone's life that is, like, again, you can see how there might be a different or a different challenges. So these are all the things you do have to keep in mind. Like, obviously, the ideal 
is that um, there's sufficient uh, resources and, and low levels of, of inequality and there's education in schools and everything that all of that is prevented because all of this is implemented early on. But when it comes to the kind of reactive approach of someone now being in the hospital and now their doctor is going to give them nutrition education, like that's, that's just super difficult um, to implement. It's kind of the same thing that we talk about when, you know, people will take pictures of hospital food, for example, and say, oh, this isn't healthy. I was in hospital. How am I eating this? Again, it's like a question of, all right, you know, remember the last time you were sick, like, did you want to have chicken and broccoli when you were sick or were you just like, oh yeah, you know, I can get in some toast. I can get in some cereal. Like these are the realities that you have to be thinking about. And unfortunately it's just not easy to get people to change the behavior. And I think as personal trainers, you also know that, you know, you've probably had um, periods of time. I know it's happened to me where you'll be giving someone advice without them necessarily being at the point where they're ready for it. Like even a family member or something, you're telling them, oh, you should change your diet. Look, you're, look, at, look at what you're doing. Your health is bad. You know, you're overweight. You should start changing your diet. But because you're coming at them and you're telling them all this stuff, they're not going to change their diet because of that. And that's similar to when people present into a hospital when they're now sick, they weren't ready for this. Like they didn't decide, oh, I'm going to actually uh, pay Cork University Hospital uh, 1500 euro for 90 days. And <laughs> I'm going to get my treatment plan. Um, so I think there are some of the realities that maybe don't shine through all the time. Yeah, it's just a hard situation overall, like um, both from the client perspective, well, I say client, the patient perspective who's looking for more information because they're like oh well i don't want to have to go to some dietitian or i don't want to have to go to someone else to look after my nutrition and they just want to get oh here's my gp they'll tell me what to do but then also from the gp's perspective they're like oh, no, i have people coming in here with so many fucking different issues i'm like i can't keep up to date with all of the latest nutritional science as well you know it's like i have other more pressing you know issues that are potentially more immediately fatal or immediately, I don't know, mortal, I suppose. And there's more, you know, there's an issue here right now. You know, it's like, like it's going to cause an issue in the next week, day, month, whatever it is, um, versus, oh, this person needs help with their nutrition. And that's the actual intervention they need. Potentially, they're looking for that help. Maybe they're not at the, this time, like you were saying. Um, but that's not going to become an issue for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So you're like, I can kind of put that by the wayside for now and I can focus on little Timmy who broke his leg or, you know, someone who has, I don't know, super high cholesterol right now. And it's like, okay, we need to get you on statins because you're probably going to have a heart attack. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's, there's only so much that a doctor can actually reasonably be expected to do. And like, I think both of us would be an advocate for like, you know, a multidisciplinary team in like an actual like GP practice, say, for example, you know, like, let's say you just have like, I don't know, you'd have to do the numbers, but let's just say you have five doctors, five physiotherapists and five dietitians in that facility, you know? So it's literally just a case of like, oh, this facility is just taking care of you and the general population entirely. It's like, okay, you get your, the doctor is there. And then also you have your diet and lifestyle stuff and then you also have your like physical stuff you know and like that's the kind of stuff that we look at we're like okay health training nutrition and lifestyle so it's like that's obviously what we would like to see however it's like well then maybe you add a psychologist to that you know maybe you add um i don't know uh i don't know a childhood uh physiotherapist you're like oh we need to have one of those specifically and maybe you add i don't know uh I don't know, fucking you can go and keep going adding people and adding people. It's like, okay, we actually see that there's a higher prevalence of you know this disease in this population. So we need to add this, but then it's like, okay, well, we've added that. What's the next highest, you know? And then it's like, oh, we'll add that. And it's like, what's the next highest, you know, you'll just keep adding to the team, which is great. If you're a hospital, it's like, you want to have all the fucking specialists. You want to have all of the, the options possible to you, you know? And obviously that's the case in like, we'll say bigger hospitals and they have specialists for, everything you know like if you go to a hospital in i know uh, some mega city like i don't know la or new york or something it's like they're gonna have no a doctor for the most minuscule potentially in a normal population a normal like you know worldwide thing it's like oh they would do one surgery per fucking year 
but it's because they have such a high population density. It's like, oh no, they're actually getting one surgery per fucking week here because there's so many, you know? Um, and obviously that's the case in Ireland, especially where it's like, you know, we're a relatively smaller nation. You know, what is it? How many people do we have in Ireland? Six million or something, you know? Yeah, like very, very small population overall. Like there's literally cities with higher populations, you know? Um, so like imagine in this, I don't know, we'll say the size of Dublin, all of that population was there plus another fucking 11 million or something, you know, <laughs> it's like, there's obviously higher opportunity for just a facility. Like what we're talking about in terms of having this multidisciplinary team in that actual facility, because they're going to be able to go, okay, we can see more people. Whereas again, like if you're a GP practice in the middle of fucking, I don't know, Connemara somewhere that's, you know, there's literally fucking 20 houses around you for fucking 10 miles. It's like, there's less need for, uh, well, there's probably more need for a multidisciplinary team, but there's less opportunity to have that as a result of the like low population density. And in those cases, yeah, you could argue that the GP needs to know more about nutrition. But if you're a GP in, again, a high population density area, you know, I can just refer out. You're like, I, I can, I know 10 other nutritionists, dietitians, whatever that could help in this case. But that isn't necessarily always what the, the patient wants. You know, and especially it's not always what the patient is ready to receive, as you were stating there. So like, it's a very hard situation overall. And I'd love to say at the end of this podcast, we had just some quick and easy fix being like, yes, this is how we've, we solved the issue for the society. And this is how you get the best service for you as a you know, person looking to get better health management overall for whatever disease you have. Um, and obviously we're, we're in this like obesity, overweight um, podcast series so like we're, we're talking from that perspective but even in that case it's like there literally is doctors that are specific like obesity specialists you know so it's like if you're going to your gp and expecting them to be able to cure or help you in its entirety your overweight obesity related diseases it's like there's there's a specialist for that that's like going to your gp and expecting them to fix your heart condition in its entirety without ever seeing a heart specialist I'm like like how is it any different? You know, there is a specialist for this. I know in, Amer- in America, they have like lipidologists. I, I think that's yeah. the term, isn't it? Um, but let's just call it like an obesity specialist. Like there's a specialist for that, you know? So you would expect that specialist then to have more information related to nutrition practices, lifestyle practices, even training practices for that condition. You know, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect your GP to have all that knowledge, which I suppose brings us to the next point is like what doctors should have more nutrition education. Let's take it from the going back to earlier in the podcast where you said that, you know, medicine in your four to five year degree, however long it is like, that's basically just entry level. Like here's all of the information you need to know at a surface level, even though obviously it, it is quite in depth. It's like, it's basically just surface level stuff. Right. Um, and then you go on to actually get your, we'll call it further education and your, your quote unquote real education. And um, what doctors as a result of that real education should have more nutrition knowledge. Cause I can think of a few right here. I just wrote them down before the podcast, like an obesity specialist, you would expect them to have a good grasp on you know, basic nutrition stuff, you know, because that's pretty much, well, I say that's not necessarily true, but that's probably one of the most effective interventions for someone that has obesity overweight related issues right now obviously again they are probably working as part of a multidisciplinary team like they probably have some sort of dietitian some sort of nutritionist but you would at least expect them to have a good decent level understanding of nutrition i don't think that's incorrect do you agree Oh, that sounds fair to me. Yeah. Obesity specialist, you'd expect that there'd be some knowledge of nutrition there. Um, and obviously that like, there's some other big ones that, that jump out. Obviously if you're a cardiologist and you're working with um, a lot of people who have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and related complications, nutrition obviously becomes very important um, there as well. So you'd expect that, you know, they would have more knowledge of the dietary factors that can lead to progression of disease or potentially, um, the improvement of symptoms, etc. So that's obviously a big important one. Diabetes is another one. Before we go on from the, the cardiologist, like you would expect those especially because even in the, like it's not like you can get away with just prescribing someone a statin 
and no lifestyle diet changes, like that's still not going to quote unquote fix the issue. You know, like if you're literally, I don't know, 70% of your diet is like saturated fat and then you go on a statin, that's not necessarily going to fix the issue that this person is having. So in that case, it's like, okay, well, we need to have the nutrition and lifestyle secured down pat for that individual, you know? So again, cardiologist, 100%. And as you were going on to diabetes then as well. Yeah. And and to be honest, like when it, even, even when it comes to these specialists, like it's still not necessarily that they need to be like expert in nutrition related to these areas, but rather that you'd hope that there'd be enough knowledge that if there's a specific problem identified, they can identify it. Like you said, like um, if you're a cardiologist, you know, and you're, you're, let's say you're a busy junior doctor training in cardiology and you're seeing patients, like it might be like, oh, how's your diet? Could you tell me a bit about your diet? That they have enough knowledge to be able to say, um, oh, it looks like you're eating, um, you know, lots of, lots of fat in your diet. It looks like lots of this is saturated fat. You know, you're eating lots of processed foods, not many fruits and vegetables. I think you could do with some improvements. We have a dietitian that I could refer you to if you'd be up for that. You know, it's those types of things um, rather than spending, you know, two hours of the day counseling someone and writing them a meal plan and stuff. Like, I think that's, it's, it's far beyond the resources um, at this point in time, other than some unique um, situations. Um, but, but, that, that's kind of the reality. And, and di- diabetes is, is obviously another big one, um, both type one and type two diabetes in this case. Um, and again, there's just different considerations like with, with type one, you might be actually just being really careful about the management of diet as it relates to the medication itself. Whereas with type two diabetes, it might be that you're actually looking for uh, potentially a remission from the disease through dietary intervention, or again, just management um, of blood glucose, tracking it, etc. So you can see how there's even different goals. And you'd expect that um, while a doctor might be, you know, giving some, some rough information for a patient with diabetes and nutrition, they're still not going to be the one carrying out like an aggressive lifestyle intervention for the purpose of remission. That would be an MDT approach. And you can see that in the research um, that's, that's been implemented for, for the remission of type two diabetes, like it is very much an, an intensive um, MDT approach pretty much. So um, there are other, there are, they're, they're kind of real core areas that I think nutrition is obviously very important. And then it starts to get a little bit more niche because for example, in gastroenterology, like that has many different um, subcomponents to it. Like for example, it could be, they could be dealing with diseases of the liver, the gallbladder, um, the, the colon, the rest of the intestines, et cetera, and the stomach, the esophagus, and all these different areas um, have different risk factors for different diseases, for example, whether that be um, esophageal cancer or bowel cancer um, or gallstones or whatever, there's different nutritional factors that can interact with each of those respective diseases. Um, So again, it might be more niche um, depending on, on the specific disease. So there might be, uh, some, some level of, of nutrition knowledge there. For example, uh, if a patient has had a, a certain bowel surgery, um, what nutrients might they need uh, replaced or something like that. Um, but again, that, that's kind of where dietitians start to come into the picture really. Uh, but that depends. Like this is the other thing is that the scope um, of let's say dietitian intervention might vary between sites. For example, if you've got um, a really high density of, of dietitians within the hospital, they can do far more, you know, they have more time to be able to counsel on these lifestyle related things. Whereas if you have less dietitians, then the priorities and the really high yield things are nutrition in the sen- in, in acute illness. Okay. So present, uh, preventing, uh, let's say malnutrition or addressing malnutrition and finding other strategies of feeding beyond just oral feeding. So, um, again, it's, it's all really resource dependent. Um, there's obviously other areas of the body that are heavily affected by nutrition. Everything's heavily affected by nutrition. Um, but for example, um, in elderly populations, super important geriatrics, the identification of, uh, malnutrition, sarcopenia, frailty, etc. Um, particularly let's say if someone presents with osteoporotic fractures um, and they're really weak and they're struggling to carry out activities of daily living nutrition intervention in that case would be really important so um, an example of nutrition knowledge that might be relevant would be malnutrition screening in that for a geriatrician let's say um, calculating must scores the must it's just screening for malnutrition so you can even see that as we start to talk about nutrition that's important 
um, for doctors or what doctors might need more nutrition knowledge, we've gone from um, the management of, of blood lipids uh, to, let's say, the nutrient deficiencies that might be present after certain bowel surgeries, um, all the way to uh, screening for malnutrition in elderly populations. So um, each respective doctor is going to have more nutrition knowledge, but again, it's in a particular area. And it's primarily, I think, for the purpose of liaising with um, a dietitian. Um, unless you have, let's say, in the US in particular, you'll have, let's say, obesity physicians who have private clinics, you know, and they have so much time to spend with their their patients. And, you know, they're really intensive with working with nutrition and everything like that. But um, within the HSE and hospitals in Ireland, like, like that's just not really the reality. Yeah, there's a few others and other ones as well that I would like to mention. That is yeah, like a, an endocrinologist. Um, I'm yes. gonna say I'm gonna put put these all together. Like endocrinologist, a urologist. I know that's what the American term is. I'm not sure what the yeah, other urologist, yeah. urologist. Um, and then like a gynecologist, and that kind of all seemed like why? Well, like why would you want them to be nutritionally educated? And that's because obviously there is a huge nutrition component to hormone health in, in general, right? Like if you're looking at someone's blood if I could speak someone's blood panel and you're like, Oh, you're, I don't know, for example, your SHBG is high. It's like, this has dietary reasons behind it. Or maybe you're looking at someone and they have like low testosterone and like, you could understand that, Oh, you've actually been on a, you know, a really calorie deprived diet. You've been doing a lot of like, you know, cardiovascular exercise and your sleep hasn't been great. That explains why this is low. We need to have some lifestyle interventions before we go on to something like, you know, T or T or something, you know, like you see, this is, this is a big thing in the fitness industry, especially now where people are basically like, Oh, I'm on T or T it's not steroids, you know? And basically they just go into their doctor after having dieted down for, you know, whatever, 16, 20 weeks, having like a week of like partying shit night sleep. Um, and then they go in their T level is fucking down at like 200 um, or they get fucking measured later in the day or something. Um, and they're like, Oh, look, I had an issue, you know? Um, and in reality, it's like, these are just diet and lifestyle related factors that could have been addressed to get that up. Now that's not always the case. Don't get me wrong. But like, obviously again, if your doctor is able to identify those things and look at your diet and go, okay, this is actually, uh, we need a dietary intervention to deal with this rather than putting on you, putting you on a lifetime of medication. Like that's obviously something that you need to be aware of. And again, I say like a gynecologist in particular, because obviously they're used to, or they do indeed have to help with the, the management of fertility, usually more so than in, in males. Right. And because obviously if a female can't get pregnant, like a woman can't get pregnant, like she's probably the one that's going to go in and get checked before the man goes in and gets checked, you know? And even though, again, it could be like literally a 50, 50, chance of either of them <laughs> having an issue but she is the one that's likely to go in and get checked and have uh, interactions there and again there could literally be a lifestyle and diet um quote-unquote fix for the the situation you know like she might be i don't know amenorrheic um because she trains really hard doesn't eat enough and does a lot of cardio as well. Again, sleep has been poor. And like, that's, that's the issue, you know? Um, and again, a gynecologist is going to have to be the one that potentially deals with that. And then obviously, again, like in this broader category, especially as we move into the, the world of potentially more and more like IVF solutions and like fertility type stuff, like doctors in that field, we'll call them like fertility doctors. Like they are going to have to be more aware of diet and lifestyle overall and um, because obviously again like first of all it impacts fertility but then obviously if you are trying to get your your client your patient to have a successful you know full-term pregnancy like you're going to have to be able to support them nutritionally make sure they're in good health overall for that now again they're probably going to refer out to a dietitian have like an in-house dietitian if you're going to some fertility clinic they probably have that um but that is something to obviously be aware of if you are a doctor in that field, like you would ideally like them to have a good understanding or at least a, a basic understanding of the nutritional demands of that. And especially like, you know, something like, I don't know, vitamin A, like it's teratogenic um, in the first, what is it? Six weeks or something of a pregnancy, you know, but it is also, you know, you need to have sufficient vitamin A intake to be healthy and to be fertile in the first place, you know? So like this kind of stuff, it's like, you would expect a doctor that is dealing with that more often, 
like a, again, a gynecologist perhaps, um, or like a fertility doctor in particular, you would ideally like them to know that stuff um, rather than just giving you some generic recommendations, which are potentially, you know, harmful for you, you know? Um, so other than that, the only other one that I would say is like you would expect, or you would, I'd say expect, you would want a GP to have a very broad, like I say broad, and that's the wrong word, a very superficial understanding of nutrition. Like you, they should know about calories and macros and what that looks like on a plate, you know? However, even in that case, like, especially if they are a, quite a busy GP, like oftentimes it's probably, first of all, more fruitful for them to refer out, but also oftentimes it's probably just as easy for them to have some like, we'll call them like brochures or something where it's like, this is, you know, in two pages, the basics of nutrition for the client. And rather than them spending 20 minutes that they just don't have because they go in for a five minute uh, con- consultation, um, like it's probably easier for them to be like, right, you actually need to, or they should say it differently, but you know, you actually need to improve your diet. Here's the brochure that we use to help people with that. Um, we can refer you out to X, Y, and Z if you need to. Um, but let's see about these changes. First of all, see what you know, we, benefits we can get from that. Um, so I would expect, or I want my GP to have some superficial knowledge, just, you know, the basics. But again, I understand why that potentially isn't necessarily possible, especially depending on the setup of that general practice. Yep. I think that um, overall, what we've identified in this podcast is that there's just a a big problem of trade-offs, a big problem of of resource allocation, um, and also the problem of scope of practice within an increasingly complex world and especially increasingly complex field of medicine. Um, Because this is one of the challenges that basically exponentially increases with medical education is that like if you take let's say like the management of any disease let's say cancer okay if you were to go back 50 years in in cancer um cancer treatment there was basically like a handful of drugs you know a handful of kind of very blunt chemotherapeutic agents that just kind of were just really cytotoxic and that that was it it's like there's this handful of drugs we're kind of trying them out very much an experimental phase um of, of cancer treatment for most of the 20th century. Just, now- just for anyone who's interested, that literally came from like chlorine gas. I believe it was the Americans that were actually um, hoarding chlorine gas. I, I want to say it was off the coast of Italy, but that doesn't make sense because it was in World War II. Um, but somewhere anyway, and what they found is like once those, they basically had a ship sink and those chlorine canisters fucking whatever exploded, whatever. And all these uh, sailors that were, subjected to that all of a sudden like all of their rapidly dividing cells just you know didn't rapidly divide anymore so they were like hmm this is interesting we could use this for other rapidly dividing cells so that's why they were blunt force it's literally just fucking chlorine gas the same stuff that was fucking you know in world war one yeah and and there was and there was a lot there was a few 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 drugs that basically were tried on their own and then in, in cocktails, effectively, different combinations of drugs, trying to see like, what could possibly work. Um, but as the 20th century unfolded then, you have far more um, specific treatments as we head into to the 21st century. So you've got, like, you've got very selective treatments down to the molecular level, like depending on the molecular signature of a particular cancer, like there's treatments that are very specific to that and immunotherapies um, for cancer. And there's just so many different options that like medical education now is not the same as medical education 70 years ago. Okay. Or a hundred years ago or whatever. So, and, and that's going to basically continue increasing. And that's goes, that goes into many different areas like for example another area that's rapidly developed and developing is interventional radiology okay so lots of different uh, procedures that can now be done through basically just the use of catheters and small cameras and all this sort of stuff um, and and as all these advances go forward the problem of medical education is continually what should we teach what's most important because you can't just make it a 15 year degree you know so ultimately like subspecialties keep dividing into subspecialties um, and it just takes more and more time and more and more effort to to get into to one of these subspecialties so 
like this is, this is even further compounded we have like this like genomic revolution yeah like entering into this like precision medicine realm like uh, like i obviously have an interest in depression and, and obviously you do as well um but uh like they I, a paper came out recently and it was just talking about they're at this kind of cusp of like understanding like um uh, SSRIs a little bit better in terms of how different populations based on their genes actually were, are likely to respond to different SSRIs. You know, like you see the, the co- common thing where people are like, oh, I tried this SSRI, it didn't work for me, or you know, I didn't get any effect. And obviously like that's really hard because there is this like uh, latency period of the effect. It's like it takes six weeks plus for it to start to work. So you've effectively got this like a sunk cost fallacy as well, where it's like, oh, I've already been on this for six weeks and it hasn't worked. And you're like, should I just keep going, et cetera. Um, but now they're in the stage or they're, they're getting into this stage where it's like, we're able to identify the genes that could potentially lead to understanding which drugs to prescribe before we have to wait six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever. And it's like, that's just in that field that I, I know a little bit better. Um, but that's across the board. Like we're in this kind of systems biology and um, precision nutrition, precision um, medicine realm, or at least we're getting to that. And like, I'm uh, heavily invested in like genomic therapies and uh, CRISPR therapeutics is actually one that I'm just in case anyone's looking for, you know, some, some shout outs. Um, but anyway, like, like genomic uh, therapies, I'm like, this is actually such a, like we're at that, stage where it's like these are like gene sequencing has become so much cheaper that we can actually start implementing this on a mass scale now right now is it fucking viable no not really and because we don't know enough but because systems biology which is just you know basically overview picture of how biology works on all these different systems we'll say um like that's advancing rapidly and like i can easily see in the next 10 15 20 years it being a case where you literally have to be extremely well knowledged in uh, genetics genomics um to be a doctor you know and it's like is are they preparing doctors for that right now i I don't think so but again it's like it's hard to say like oh let's prepare the doctors right now for that when we might reach a bottleneck with that technology that we haven't you know understood ahead of the time and now you've just got a lot of doctors that think that genomics is going to be like the the thing that they need to, to have and then it's like oh no this is actually 20, 30, 40 years away. And, you know, you've wasted five years of this education because it's not actually implementation, implementable technology, you know, which again goes back to the first five years or the first four years. It's basically like, here's the fucking general stuff that doesn't really change, you know, like obviously the, the protocols and that kind of stuff, um, that changes. Um, but, you know, how the liver works doesn't necessarily change. So you have to get a good understanding of that and then layer on the, the extra stuff once you actually start to specialize. Yeah, so that's the expert uh, opinion on medical education from a second year medical student and Patrick. <laughs> An idiot. <laughs> uh, but yeah, look guys, as you can we're see- We're solving world hunger next week. Just yeah, we're solving- <laughs> But yeah, as you can see, look, I think if you've listened to this podcast, it'll be very clear that like deciding what goes into a medical curriculum is very challenging. And while the ideal, of course, is that doctors would know everything about nutrition and everything about exercise and everything about psychology, it's just not realistic, really, because first you have to know everything about medicine, which is basically impossible. Lifelong <laughs> endeavor already. Like there's, there's literally no doctor that could tell you everything about every field. Like it just doesn't happen. Um, so to expect them to know everything about another field is ludicrous you know ludicrous so there you go that's uh the problem not solved but discussed yes overall i think look if you're a doctor and you want to help more people learning about nutrition is definitely a good thing like that's it's not going to not serve you you know however maybe it's not going to serve you as much as specializing your time or allocating your time on the stuff that actually pays the bills is your bread and butter is the stuff that you know you need to know for your specialization or whatever. However, I know the two of us are definitely advocates for more continuing education around exercise and nutrition. You know, I'm not going to say I'm not going to recommend that. I'm like, yeah, look, if they can wiggle in some extra nutrition education to a medicine curriculum, happy days. I'm I'm fucking, I'm good with that. Exercise as well. I'm good with that. However, 
ultimately I want to go to my doctor to, I don't want to go, or rather I don't want to go to my doctor to learn that stuff. I would rather go to my doctor when I actually need to go to my doctor because I'm sick or because I have an issue. I don't want to be like, oh, you uh, spent the last 20 years learning about nutrition. Well, guess what? I spent the last 40 years learning about nutrition, so I don't need that intervention. I need help with my, I don't know, fucking inflamed prostate or something. <laughs> I don't know, you know? Um, like that's, you know, I, I would rather my doctor knew what doctors are supposed to know rather than what dietitians or nutritionists are supposed to know, you know? Um, but anyway, I have nothing else to say on the matter. Um, do you? No, done. Um, fantastic, Gary. Where can people find us? Nowhere. Oh, or we're just non-people anymore. We're just gone. in the dark. Oh, yeah, you can find us on social media as at Skinny Gaz. That's me. At The Real Paddy Farrell. That's Paddy. And at Brian O'Hengisa. That is Brian. We're all putting out content on our pages. It's all a bit different. So follow us all. And also follow Triage Method, of course, on the socials. Um, along with that, we do have coaching spaces available. So if you are interested in our coaching service, we'd be happy to work with you. Just reach out. You can drop us an email, info at triagemethod.com. You can go to triagemethod.com and look at the information there, or you can reach out to any of us individually via Instagram DMs, and we'll get back to you, give you more info. No problem at all. We do have a newsletter as well, which you can subscribe to um, at the link below and a Facebook group, the Triage Method Community, which you can join for free. Ask us any questions in there that you might have. You know, if you want to discuss things with other people, again, that's an option. And if you're a coach then yourself and you want to, you know, get a bit more education, we do have an education platform called the Coaches Corner, which you can subscribe to. Um, and we're releasing more content in there all the time um, that's relevant to uh, personal trainers and people interested in uh, their training and nutrition. So get involved there. Um, we have this podcast, as you know, so I'd recommend that if you enjoyed this podcast episode or another episode, do share it on your Instagram story or wherever you happen to um, use your social media. And if you can leave a rating and review, depending on the platform that you use, that would uh, be fantastic. We would be very grateful. Um, I think that's uh, everything we do, is it? I, I believe so. I believe it is. Henry. Well, it's not everything we do. Like we do also have lives, but that's, that's everything we're uh, you know, asking people to do for us. I don't have a life, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, that is the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, guys, and we will see you on the next one.